Welcome to the show, Fairways and Finance. My name is Jeff Smith. I've been in the mortgage business for 16 years, top quarter percent LO nationwide. And you know, this podcast, we want to talk about your finances, how to grow and accumulate wealth and all things related to the mortgage industry. But we're golf lovers here as well. So we're going to work in some golf. Don't worry for my golf lovers out there. We got you. And I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the show. Have a really informational and very informative show for you today. We're going to be going through some of the most common things that come up in a mortgage transaction in terms of you know, questions about what the terms are, what the process is. And so let's get right into it. So debt to income ratio or debt to ratio as people commonly mispronounce it. Debt to income ratio is like one of the main metrics we look at in a mortgage application for qualifying purposes. So debt to income ratio is a percentage and it takes the minimum payment on any current debt that you have. So we're just looking at the minimum payment, not the payment you're actually making. So if your car payment is $300 a month, we're using $300 a month. If you actually pay $500 a month, we're still only using the 300 a month. Uh, so the minimum payment on any current debt plus the payment on the new mortgage. And then we take that number and divide it by your gross monthly income. So that percentage is what we call debt to income ratio. And so debt to income ratio, depending on the type of product, there's different percentages that are allowed. In most cases, like the most you're going to be able to get on debt to income ratio is 49.9%. And then anything above beyond that, it's not approvable. Uh, so there's another component to that that's more, uh, more less commonly known is called housing ratio. So the housing ratio takes just the new mortgage payment divided by your gross monthly income. And that's a separate percentage. That's sometimes called the front-end ratio. And then debt-to-income ratio is sometimes called the back-end ratio. So those are two ratios, uh, debt-to-income and housing ratio. So DTI, as it's called as an acronym. LTV, or loan-to-value, this is another percentage used in the mortgage industry. And loan to value, we're looking at the percentage that you're financing against the value of the home if it's a refinance or the purchase price of the home if it's a purchase. And when it's a purchase, we actually use the lower between the appraised value and the purchase price. So I'll give you an example here. So let's say that just for round numbers, let's say you're buying a $100,000 home. If you're borrowing $80,000, your loan to value or LTV is $80,000 um, as long as the appraisal comes in at $100,000, which is the purchase price. So if the purchase price is $100,000, appraised value is $100,000, and you're borrowing $80,000, that's 80%, which is 80% loan to value. Let's say that the home appraised for less than the purchase price. So let's say the home appraised at 80,000. So now we're using the appraised value because it's lower than the purchase price. And so the appraised value uh, is 80,000. The amount you're borrowing is 80,000. So now your loan to value is 100%. So that's how LTV is calculated. And actually take this like one step further into a little bit nittier, grittier situation. Let's say that... Um, the the you know let's say you're doing the minimum down payment on a conventional loan for a non first time home buyer so that's five percent down so you're buying a home for a hundred thousand you're financing ninety five thousand 
If the home appraises for less than the purchase price, you're going to have to put additional money down because you're already borrowing the max, which is 95% LTV. Now the appraisal comes in low. The most you can borrow is 95% of whatever that appraised value is. So let's say the home appraises at 97000 instead of 100000 Now we're using 97000 to determine the LTV. Your max financing would be 95% of 97,000, which is the appraised value. I would give you that number, but I would hurt myself if I tried to do that calculation in my head. So you'll have to get a calculator and figure that out on your own. Um, but that's how we calculate LTV. That's what it is. That's how it works on a purchase. On a refi, we're just looking at the loan amount versus the appraised value because there is no purchase price. Interest rate versus APR. Two different numbers here. Interest rate is the rate that you pay to borrow the money. So the interest rate, you know, is an annual rate on a mortgage. So let's say you've got a $100,000 loan at an interest rate of 5%. That is, uh, you know, that's going to be $500 a year in interest that you're paying on that mortgage. Uh, so, or excuse me, that'd be $5,000 a year in interest that you're paying on that mortgage. It actually works out to be a little bit less than that because the interest rate is calculated based on the current balance. So the balance on the loan is actually going down during that year. So it ended up being slightly less than $5,000. Um, but that, that's the, the interest rate is the rate that you pay to borrow the money. And then you have APR, which is annual percentage rate. And the APR takes some of the closing costs and converts those into a percentage and adds that to the interest rate to give you an idea of the overall cost of the loan. So if you've got closing costs on the loan, the APR is always going to be higher than the interest rate. And the APR is like a government uh, number that was invented to help consumers compare uh, rates between lenders. Because you could come to me and I can quote you a rate, but if you paid more in closing costs, you could get a lower rate. And that could actually go you know, significantly lower, but your closing costs will be significantly higher. So it's difficult to try and figure out, well, does that make sense for me to do? The APR takes into account the closing costs and the rate. So you're getting an idea of the overall cost of the loan. And then lenders will name fees different names. And so if you're comparing two worksheets from two different lenders, it gets difficult to figure out like what are the fees that I should be comparing to get an apples to apples comparison. The APR takes those and lumps them into that number so that it's easier to just compare APRs, lender versus lender. Uh, so that's annual percentage rate. And then uh, we've got discount points or origination fees. Most commonly now we just see discount points. So they're the same thing. So discount points is an additional fee that you pay to buy down the interest rate on the loan. So that's on top of what the lender would charge as their normal lender fee. Like we've got a normal flat lender fee that we charge on every transaction. But then you could also pay an additional fee called discount points in exchange for a lower interest rate. So that uh, amount that the rate would be reduced is variable based on every day's pricing. So every day that the stock market is open, we're seeing a change in mortgage rates. And that spread with paying discount points, you know, how much lower of an interest rate you get is going to vary day to day. So I can't give you a baseline number that if you pay a 1% discount point, you get X percent off of the rate. 
but the discount points are generally thought of in a percentage terms and it's a percent of the loan amount. So if your loan amount is 500,000 and you're going to uh, pay a 1% discount point, then you're paying $5,000 in points in exchange for a lower interest rate. So the way that I like to figure out if it makes sense to pay discount points, you take the amount that you're paying in points and you divide it by your monthly savings. So if I pay uh, $5,000 in points and I'm saving $150 a month on the payment because the rate is lower, I would take 5,000 divided by 150 and whatever that number is, and I just did this the other day, so I can tell you it's 2.77 years to break even. So 5,000 divided by 150 divided by 12 gives you the number of years for, for the break even. And I like to see a break even point at three years or less uh, because statistically the average mortgage is held for a total of seven years. Most people either refinance their home or sell their home after seven years. Um, so if you're breaking even on discount points at three years or less, then you're well within that statistical average. In today's world, rates have been rising. And so as rates rise, you know, at some point we'll hit a peak and it, there's always cycles of rates going up and down. So at some point the rates are going to come back down and then you would refinance when rates come back down. Well, there's some indicators that we may be in a recession in the next uh, 12 months. So if that were to happen, then people getting a loan today could be refinancing in another 12 months to get a lower rate. So I would tend to lean toward an even shorter break period in this type of environment. Um, but general rule of thumb, three years for break even. Escrow account. So an escrow account is like a checking account. It's a depository account that's connected to your mortgage. It's managed by the lender and it holds the money for your taxes and your homeowner's insurance, or it could be just for taxes. Um, so you, you, you know, depending on the, top, the product of your loan and how much you put down, you might have a choice to escrow only taxes uh, and not insurance or to escrow both together. I escrow on, on our mortgages because I'd rather pay one uh, bill versus three. I just think it's simpler to do it that way. Less for me to manage. I'm a simple guy. want to have as little to manage as possible. Uh, but... With the escrow account, every month that you're making your payment, part of that payment is going toward escrow. So part of the payment is for insurance, part of the payment is for taxes, and that portion of the mortgage payment is getting split off and added into your escrow account each month. So the escrow account is building a balance every month that you're making a payment on the loan. In most counties, taxes are paid semi-annually. So Twice a year, the mortgage company is going to write a check out of the escrow account to pay the taxes, and then the homeowner's insurance would be paid once per year, and that's paid in advance to the homeowner's insurance company, and the due date of it is usually on the closing date of your mortgage uh, unless you updated your insurance or got a new insurance policy. So that homeowner's insurance comes out once per year. What's confusing for, pe for people when they first get a mortgage is that you're going to get a copy of those bills when they come due. You don't have to pay them if you have an escrow account because they're coming out of the escrow account. So some people don't like escrow accounts. They want to manage the money on their own. And the thought process for most people behind that is they don't want the bank or the mortgage company holding their money and then making the payments on their behalf. They want to have control of that money and then make those payments when they come due. They want to be able to take that money and invest it, and they don't want the bank holding on to it and um, you know, controlling it. So not that that's wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, you're, 
only carrying, you know, unless you have a really expensive house, you're only carrying a you know, few grand in your escrow account at a time anyway. So how much are you in interest are you really going to make on a few grand? Uh, but uh, that's the thought process behind it. You know, but again, for me, I'd rather just simplify it and have one mortgage payment instead of adding in two other payments that I've got to remember to pay twice a year and once a year, which gets confusing to manage. Uh, so that's what an escrow account is. And then a fixed versus adjustable rate mortgage. So as we're in a rising rate environment right now, interest rates have gone up 1.5% so far this year. We're going to likely see rates continue to rise throughout the rest of the year, but nobody knows for sure. In a rising rate environment, it can start to make sense to look at an adjustable rate mortgage versus a fixed rate mortgage. So a fixed rate mortgage, like a 30-year fixed, for example, you have a fixed interest rate for all 30 years. So your principal and interest payment on that loan, the payment for the mortgage itself, is the same payment for 30 years down to the penny. It will never change. You could do a 25-year fixed. You could do a 20-year fixed. You could do a 15 or a 10-year fixed. When you drop from a 30 to a 20-year fixed, you get a slightly lower interest rate on a 20-year. And when you drop from a 20 to a 15-year fixed, then you get a, a lower rate on a 15-year fixed. That's a bigger jump when you go from a 20 to a 15. And then um, when you go from a 15 to a 10, every now and then you get improved rate on a 10, but generally it's about the same as a 15-year. So those are fixed interest rate the whole period of time of the loan. An adjustable rate mortgage... The way those work is you have a fixed interest rate for an introductory period. So let's take a seven-year arm, for example. So let's say it's a seven-six arm. So a seven-six arm, interest rate is fixed for the first seven years of the loan. So it's a a starting rate that is generally lower than a 30-year fixed rate. And this is why you would take a seven-year arm because you get, you know, let's say it's half a percent lower than a 30-year fixed rate. So you're saving, you know, half a percent on your monthly payment. That rate is fixed for the first seven years that you have the mortgage. And when it's a regular arm, you're making a regular principal and interest payment on the loan. So every month you're making the payment, the balance on the mortgage is going down. And then at the end of seven years, the very beginning of year eight, it's going to go into the adjustable period. So it will be... Um, You'll have like a what's called a, a fixed margin. So it might be 2.25%. It could be 2.5%. It could be 2%. It depends on the ARM product. You would take that margin plus an index. So it could be like the SOFR index. It could be a one-year treasury. It could be LIBOR. There's a lot of different ARM products. Whatever that index is, you add your margin to it, and that's your interest rate. So if it's a 7-6 arm, when you get into the beginning of year 8, it's going to adjust based on the index in the margin, and then it's going to adjust every six months thereafter. A 7-1 arm would adjust once per year, every year thereafter. It's a 30-year loan, and then there's generally some caps on how much it can adjust. So like a common cap structure would be 5-2-5. So five, the first five, meaning the rate could go up or down 5% in that first adjustment. The two, meaning that it could every year thereafter go up or down 2%. And then the second five is the lifetime cap. So that means it could never be higher than 5% above the initial start rate. So let's say you got a seven-year arm at a rate of 4%. The interest rate could never be higher than 9% over the lifetime of that loan. No matter how high the index got that it was tied to, it could never go higher than 9%. So the reason you would take an arm is for savings versus a 30-year fixed. And you, you don't really take an arm planning to have the mortgage during the adjustable period. Like 
most cases, you know, back to the average length of time that somebody has a, a mortgage, it's seven years statistically. So if you get a seven-year arm, you're likely to have that mortgage at or below that period of time, you know, and, and you're likely to sell the home or refinance before that arm comes due anyway. Um, so like my wife and I on our primary residence, we have a 10-year arm because I, I just don't see us being in that house more than 10 years. And there's probably at some point in the next decade, rates come back down lower than what our current mortgage is, and we refinance it then anyway. So why pay a higher rate for a 30-year fix when I can fix in a rate for 10 years and save money and interest during the during that time in, uh, anyway during those 10 years? So that's a few of the common mortgage terms. Hope that helps you guys and, and hope you're well. Hey guys, thanks for listening. I I hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable information out of it. I want to help to educate others and and help people grow their business and build wealth. And I can only do that with referrals and your help getting the word out about this podcast. So if you come across someone you think could benefit from this, please share it with them. And if there's nobody who comes to mind, a five-star review would go a long way in in helping me to, to grow this podcast and grow the brand. So appreciate your support. 